abundant. And I kind of stumbled across this meeting and, or this idea in a recent meeting. Uh, several leaders in our church have been going to a program called Sacred Places Indiana. We introduced this last fall. And some of you have probably read a little bit about how this experience has gone. And if you haven't, don't worry. Uh, we'll talk about it some more. We'll give you some updates on how it's going. But basically, Sacred Places Indiana is a program that is designed to help congregations that are in historic properties learn new ways to sustain them, to learn new ways to leverage them for mission. So they're having us ask the questions, what are the partnerships, the resources, the mission opportunities in our community that we can partner with to be good, to be good stewards of what God has given us? God has blessed us with resources and faithfulness and a building that is in great condition. Uh, and we're trying to figure out, okay, so how is it God wants us to use that? And so Sacred Places is four trainings for us, for four of our leaders, that is helping us, give us resources to do this work. And so far we've done two of these meetings. We have two more to go. But as the most recent session... I was so lucky to have been given the information for a sermon series because we talked about abundance. And an abundance mindset means focusing on what you have. And this can be contrasted with a scarcity mindset, which is what happens when you focus on what you don't have. You know, sometimes we think about this question, we think about what we have as a pretty fixed thing. You either have enough or you don't. But there's actually a ton of evidence that psychologically speaking, how you choose to per perceive what you have affects how you choose to act. For instance, in the blog, Right as Rain, which is operated by the University of Washington Medical Center, Emily Boynton explains the difference between these mindsets. In this blog post, she quotes psychologist Tabitha Kirkland, and she writes, on a very basic level, scarcity mindset makes you feel bad, and abundant makes you feel good. When you feel negative emotions, it leads to narrowed attention and hyperfixation on the thing that's causing you to feel negative. Scarcity, she continues, can hold your mind captive, taking over your thoughts and taxing your brain so that you can't think of other things. This in turn leads to behaviors focused on short-term coping, even if these actions worsen long-term outcomes. And so we're used to thinking about resources as you either have them or you don't. But there's evidence that says that how you choose to view your situation can affect how you react to it. And so do we think we have enough? If we do, then we can focus on the most constructive, positive, long-term questions. But if you focus on what you don't have on scarcity, then you can expect anxiety, short-term thinking, and hyperfixation on our lack. 
So for this sermon series, we're going to be going through the New Testament writings, mostly the letters of Paul. And I think this is actually the perfect situation to think about this mindset, because the early church, I mean those first 50 years after Jesus, it was not always flush with resources. There were some wealthy benefactors, a fun fact, most of them were women. The early church was bankrolled by wealthy women. But we can also imagine that sometimes there wasn't enough. And yet you hear these stories throughout the New Testament of gifts being shared, of communities joining together to support one another, of Christians, followers of Christ, coming together to share what they did have. So today's reading is going to come from Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I don't think there's a single writing in the entire Bible that does more to capture this reality. That focusing on the right things can transform how you see the world. So here now our scripture from the fourth chapter of Philippians. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have received your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was kind of you to share my distress. And you, Philippians, indeed, know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. I have been paid in full and have more than enough. I am fully satisfied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, may God bless this reading. Well, Paul's letter to the Philippians is just a little bit different than his other letters. It's, what makes it different is that it doesn't appear that Paul is solving any problem. So most of Paul's letters, we can imagine that a church is going through a crisis, and so they write Paul and say, how would you deal with this? So in Galatians, there's the problem of folks wanting to enforce the Jewish law. In Romans... There's this need to explain what the entire gospel is about. In Romans, Paul's longest letter is it's long. It's really long. But he's trying to answer this question, what is this all about? And then in Corinthians, well, let's just say that there are some things going wrong. So many things that the letter honestly reads like a laundry list of, of ways a church can mess up. I mean, it is just problem after problem after problem. And Philippians isn't like any of those. Paul seems to be writing this letter to the Philippians because, well, he just likes them. 
You know, you're not supposed to have favorite churches. Paul has a favorite church, and it is the church in Philippi. So in some places in this letter, he has written about how he is imprisoned. And maybe he is worried that his end is coming near. And he wants to know this, he wants this group of Christians to know that he is glad that they exist. So throughout the letter, he encourages them to make sure they are focusing on the right things. Jesus Christ and his power to transform our worlds. You know, scholars have this hunch about this letter that, that it draws on the ancient Greek philosophy of Stoicism. Uh, we know Paul was a very educated person. But this letter reads in some ways like an ancient Stoic letter. So Stoicism, if you don't know the ancient Greek philosophy, was this, this philosophy that believed that you should focus on the things in life that you can control and release the things that you can't. And so the, the famous image from Stoicism is that of, of a dog who is tied to a wagon and the wagon is going downhill. So the dog cannot stop the wagon. That is something that it cannot control, but, but it can choose to react to the wagon. Right? It can run alongside the wagon. So for Stoics, this was kind of the key to happiness. We are all the dog tied to the wagon going downhill. Happiness means focusing on what you can control and accepting what you can't. So if you spend your entire life running the opposite direction of the wagon, that's not going to go very well. So Stoics focus on detachment. Let go of what you can't control. Let go of the things that you know will cause you hurt and pain. So like a modern example would be this. Uh, imagine you have a favorite coffee cup. And I got to say, I have a favorite coffee cup. I should have brought it up here. You can't control the reality that that coffee cup will one day break. Like you might knock it off of your desk and it will just shatter it into a million pieces. You can't control that fact. But you can control the attachment to the coffee cup. So you can tell yourself, this cup is gonna break someday. I really shouldn't like it very much. Then when it breaks, you didn't like it anyways. This is the basic Stoic argument. There is a, a huge problem with Stoicism, by the way, and I am not saying that Stoicism is like Christianity because uh, Stoicism says that you shouldn't get attached to anything that can cause you pain. Uh, that includes other people, right? You know, you and your friends are one day going to reach the end of life and die. Stoics would say, don't get too attached to them. You should avoid attachments. Quite frankly, that's the opposite of Christianity. I mean, we worship a God who is so passionate and in love with us that it leads God to God's death. And so Paul is not advocating for this version of Stoicism. But Paul does adopt one of the ideas from Stoicism. Instead of focusing on what you can't control, Paul wants you to focus on something that is always more than enough. 
Jesus? Is there pain in our lives? Is there lack? Is there a sense that there isn't enough? Is there catastrophe in our lives? Yes. Life is full of that stuff. And for the early church trying to make it in a hostile Roman world, they would have experienced this on a daily basis. They would have known that things were kind of in a crisis situation. But don't worry, Paul instructs them. We worship a God who provides. So Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord. And he uses this phrase over and over again in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. I know what it is to have too little, he writes. And I know what it is to have plenty. And in any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That last part's really familiar. And just think about it in this context. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This isn't just a motto for athletes who believe that they can push the limits of human existence. This is actually a reminder for those of us worried that we don't have enough, that we lack something. For those of us who get trapped in the scarcity mindset, if we focus on Christ, on the living God who comes to be with us, we find that we have more than enough. And for Paul, just this transformation on our focus away from the troubles, towards the one who promises to be forever faithful to us. This is what sustains the work of the church. This is what keeps it going even when it isn't sure it has what it needs. So you have to notice, this isn't Paul saying that everything will be better. Paul is writing this letter from imprisonment. Things for Paul are about as bad as they can get when he writes this letter. He is known suffering. And Paul knows for this fledgling church in Philippi that there simply will not always be plenty. They are on the outskirts of the empire. They are depending on the generosity of others as he has. And there will be times when they don't have enough but Paul wants them to not focus on what they lack, but rather on what they have. And what they have is a God of abundance who has plenty to offer. In the midst of that situation, Paul knows our God gets it and our God provides. And so Paul is writing this letter to his favorite congregation to remind them, rejoice, focus on what we always know will be more than enough, Jesus Christ. So this is where we start. What are we focused on? What we don't have? On scarcity, the resources we wish we had? It's become really commonplace in the church in America to talk about what we don't have. We don't have the people we had 50 years ago. 
nor the financial resources. I kind of wonder what the early church would say to us, by the way. These churches that were meeting in people's homes and in catacombs that did not always have enough, that were facing a culture hostile to their existence. I imagine that they would say something like, oh, so you don't have enough? Well, how's your prayer life? Because that's what gets you through. So as we've gone through this process of sacred places, these conversations about the resources we do have, as we've gone through this process, at every step I've tried to write something to the church, whether in the weekly newsletter or the newsletter that goes out to members of the church, and I always end these things by saying, uh, please pray for our leaders, which is the way you end a church letter, I know. It's, it's the obvious thing to say at the end of it. But I, I'm really not saying it as a formality. I'm saying it because we're a church. And we need the help and the sustenance of our God. Because none, none of the work, none of this work will work without a God who abundantly provides. None of it will work without a God who shows up as plenty in the midst of our lack. So it's become really fashionable to talk about what the church doesn't have, members and money. But it's also become really fashionable to pretend as though God doesn't have anything to do with this. As though we have to figure it out ourselves, as though the first step could be anything other than stopping and praying to the one who provides. And so as we begin this series about abundance, this is where we are going to start. Not with what we think we have or don't have, but knowing that prayer, prayer carried out through our words, through our deeds, through our whole life, provides the core of all we do. Because we pray to, we worship, we celebrate a God who is more than enough. So let us pray. Let us remember that our lives are not defined by the scarcity we feel, but by an abundance of riches, of grace and love. We have more than enough because our God is always more than enough.